Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. For those who may be new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown campus pastor, one of the preaching pastors here at the Austin Stone. We are glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. We'll be there in a moment. We're continuing on in our sermon series throughout the Gospel of Mark, going verse by verse as we typically do. To look at Mark's testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to see this, that Jesus' word exposes human hearts for what they are. That his word, as God in the flesh, he's able to see past our facades and the things on the surface to get to what's actually going on underneath. That he, like no other, can make plain the secret intentions of our hearts. And when I say that, all of us should be a little bit afraid. A little bit scared because all of us tend to hide from time to time in various forms and fashions. All of us tend to take those deepest parts of our hearts and keep them to ourselves and not tell anyone or tell God about them. We do it for a variety of reasons. We don't want to be found out. We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be honest. The reasons vary from person to person, but all of us tend to hide. And that's why the best friends in your life are those people who force you to go past the service and talk about what actually is going on. Those friends who when they ask you, hey, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine. And they know you're not fine. They ask you anyway. Those friends that when they see you get unreasonably upset about something very, very small, they ask penetrating questions afterwards because they won't let you get away with that. See, they love you too much and know you too well to let whatever is brewing underneath the surface remain covered up. These are the friends that you will not always like in the moments, but you'll love them for a lifetime. These are those friends that you, in the moment, you will not always like them, but you will be very, very thankful for them in the long run. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us this clearly in the word of God. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That a good friend will wound you from time to time. A good friend will tell you the truth, ask you a difficult question from time to time because they love you. See, enemies tell you you're okay when they know you're not okay. And when I first became a believer, God was gracious to give me one of these friendships. He was very kind to give me one of these friendships because before I knew Jesus, I didn't really talk about what was going on inside of me. I didn't think about it a ton. I was in high school. I thought about football and girls. That was it. That's all I thought about. And so to talk about your feelings or your fears or insecurities or the things that make you feel ashamed... You don't do that because that's just ammunition for people to make fun of you. So you bear those things deep down. Maybe you journal if you like journaling. But I didn't. I didn't talk about them. Then I got saved. God saved me at the end of high school. And I got to know other people and got to be known by other people. I, I came to this family where now people can know what's really going on inside of me and still love me in the process. And the first time I experienced this was with my buddy Justin. He was the first person I'd ever told everything to. I've been honest about everything that was going on inside him. He's the first guy in my life who would actually ask me tough questions. First person in my life who would actually uh, press on me and speak truth to me when I didn't want to hear it. And I would do the same to him. And what happened to that process, we began to have a very high value for authenticity and accountability because we saw how refreshing it was to be known by somebody. How refreshing it was to live out how I'm known by God with someone else in my life. And it was incredibly refreshing, an amazing time in my life because I'd never had that before. But sometimes we would use um, keeping it real 
and use that as an opportunity to say some pretty hurtful things to each other. So from time to time, in our youthful zeal and arrogance and pride, we'd use it as an opportunity to say, hey, by the way, I mean to tell you, here are three things I don't like about you. I actually hate about you. I'm going to go, oh, that reminds me. I don't like these things about you either. You know, we kind of had those conversations. I don't like you. You're stupid. No one likes you. That's all I have to say. Like, we had those kind of conversations in the name of keeping it real. It wasn't always healthy. It wasn't always healthy. But I think the, the heart for us really was we want to be a good friend to the other person. We want to be honest and open and vulnerable. And the best friends in your life are those people who force you to reveal your heart. And Jesus, in a lot of ways... In this text today is going to show us how he is the best friend you could have. It sounds cliche, it sounds cheesy to say that, but he truly is. But not for the reasons you may think. Not because he's warm and cuddly, but because he knows you like nobody else. But because he'll see past the smoke streams and the things you put up as defense mechanisms and get to the heart of the matter. That eventually he's going to press you in places that you don't want to talk about. That eventually he's going to ask you questions that you don't like the answers to. And that when you think that your issue is not about God, about other people, or about circumstances, he will show you very clearly that first and foremost it is about you and God. That first and foremost it is about your heart and him. And it's the best news in the world that we can't outsmart Jesus. You can't get away from him in this regard. And it's the best news in the world and here's why. I want you to walk away with this in your mind. Jesus exposes our hearts not to shame us, but to save us. He's going to expose your heart. If you read his word, he's going to expose your heart not to shame you, but to save you. He wants to be honest with you and tell you when you've made a secondary issue a primary issue. When you're letting secondary issues and circumstances and conversations and people get in the way of the primary issue, giving your entire self to God. So we're going to see this in Mark 12, verse 13. If you know the Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This story happens in the middle of a series of challenges. We saw one last week. We'll see two more in the next couple of weeks. We'll see in a series of challenges where the religious leaders are challenging Jesus. They all want to discredit his ministry. All of them want him to go away because he's upsetting the status quo. He's upsetting their power. And this time in particular is the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians are joining together to attack Jesus tells you how scared they are. How scared they are. See, these two groups of people cannot have more opposing value systems. Okay, the Pharisees were opposed to Roman occupation and their taxes for for theological reasons. They're opposed to the tax. They don't want it. I think it's blasphemy. While the Herodians wanted Roman occupation, they wanted Roman taxes because it was for their political gain. They made money off of it. So they have competing value systems, completely opposite. But yet they can agree on one thing. Jesus has to go. Jesus has to go. And they had been scheming about this from some, for some time. We see the beginning, the beginning of this partnership back in Mark 3. Back in Mark 3, 
we see them talking and saying, we have to figure out a way to destroy Jesus. See, Jesus challenged the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath, and here's what they did, Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians are only mentioned twice in the Gospel of Mark, and both times it's talking about how they want to destroy Jesus. See, since Mark 3, they've been thinking and talking, having conversations with one another about how are we going to trap this man? How are we going to destroy him? We have to figure out the perfect way. And they must have thought they had the perfect question. They had the perfect way in Jerusalem to trap Jesus, to see his ministry destroyed. So let's see what their question is. Look at verse 13 again. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they start off by flattering him. It's false flattery. Saying, oh, we know you're awesome. We know you're true. So answer this question. And they have a question in their minds that is a very, very dangerous question, and it truly is. So no matter how he answers this question, it's going to destroy his ministry. That's what they're thinking. No matter how he answers this question, he's done. See, the tax we're talking about is the annual poll tax. And this is a tax that the Romans made the Jews pay to, to Caesar. Okay? They had, and it didn't, go, it didn't like stay in the community and build roads and take care of them. It went straight to his bank account in Rome. So everyone, no, none of the Jews liked this tax. And so they ask him, should we pay it or should we not? And if Jesus says the tax is lawful, I want you to hear it because this is a, ja- a dangerous question for Jesus. If he says the tax is lawful, then no one's going to be with him anymore. They're not going to trust him anymore. He didn't stand up to the Romans, and so they're going to ostracize him. They're not going to follow him anymore. He won't be as popular anymore, and his ministry will be done. But if he says the tax is lawful, that they should pay it, I mean, they, sh- I mean, they shouldn't pay it, that it's not lawful, then what's going to happen is Rome's going to send in an army, and they're going to kill this Jewish so-called Messiah. So either way he goes, his ministry is done, either by being ostracized by the people or killed by the Romans. They think they've got him. They think he's done. I want you to remember, they're not asking this question because they want to have an academic or political conversation about the role of government in the life of people. They don't care about that. They really don't care about that. Their intent is to trap him. You see it in the text. Their intent is to destroy him. And this is just the means they've chosen to destroy Jesus. So let's see how Jesus responds in verse 15. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, Jesus knew their question wasn't genuine. He knew they weren't being sincere. That's, he tells them, why are you trying to ask me this question? I see through you. I know what you're doing, but go ahead, ask me anyway. And they asked him about this silver coin called a denarius. Je- Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? And on these small coins was the, the image of the Roman emperor, Caesar. And on the inscription would be his titles of so-called divinity. So Jesus tells them, well, if his face is on it, he definitely owns it. Give it back to him. The word render there means to give or to pay back. 
So he's saying, if his image is on the coin, it's obviously his, then give it back to him. And that's the train of thought he wants him to have when he says the next statement. Then give to God the things that are God's. Here's what he's saying. If Caesar's image is on that and therefore he owns it and therefore you should give it back to him, my image is on you. So you give me back to me, back to God what's his. He's saying, you are my image bearers. You are mine. So give yourself back to me. St. Augustine, when talking about this text, says this. He says, Christ's coin is man. Christ's coin is man. He says, Caesar can have his coin. I want what's mine. He wants their hearts. See, we know from the text that he's speaking with their hypocrisy in mind. He says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, not the role of government. See, Jesus is not trying to make a robust stance and statement on how the government should work. He's not doing that right here. His point is simply this, that submission to governing authorities is not opposed to submission to God. It's as simple and as general as that. Now, taxes and government deserve conversation. They deserve to be talked about, and the Bible deals with them later. Paul will deal with it in Romans 13, and Peter will deal with it in 1 Peter 2. God deals with it later, but not here. If we talked about government and went on for the next 15 minutes to talk about government, we're missing the point of this text. The point of this text is that Jesus is sidestepping their question to get to their heart. See, these men are trying to make the issue about taxes. It's about taxes, Jesus. He says, no, it's not. It's not about that. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What we need to talk about is that you're resisting God. These men are resisting God, and you can tell they're resisting God because they're trying to usurp his Christ. They're actively trying to trap his Christ. They don't want God. They don't want to talk about taxes and government. They don't want to talk about getting rid of Jesus. Jesus is saying, you've made a secondary issue primary. The issue is not taxes. The issue is that you won't give to me what's mine. They want him God. And you see this clearly in verse 17. Look at how they respond. You see that they don't want to talk about taxes. They want to talk about getting rid of Jesus. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Look at how they respond. And they marveled at him. They hear his statement. Their mouths are left wide open, staring at Jesus. They're astounded at his answer. What's interesting, they don't ask a follow-up question. They don't say, hey, could you give me more clarification or specific? That's a very general statement Jesus just made. They don't have a rebuttal or a pushback or a counterpoint because they don't care about the topic. They care about trapping him. And he, they realize he just outsmarted us. He just found a way. We've been thinking about and talking about this probably for about a year at this point. He's finally here. We have the perfect question. It took him five sentences to get out of it. Disheartening a little bit. They thought they had him, and he finds a way out. See, Jesus' word exposed them for what they were. Exposed them for what they were. It brought it to the surface. And they're left speechless. And God's word will do this to you. God's word will do this to you. See, it will expose the intentions of your heart and it will take that secondary issue that you have made primary and say, that's not the main issue. The issue is your heart and your resistance to God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us how the word of God does this. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word will cut through all your defenses and tell you what is most true about you. It'll tell you what is most true about you. It'll sidestep your excuses, my excuses. It'll undermine our sensibilities. It'll tell us the truth that we don't want to be true. It can do no other. It's the very word of God. It's the word of God. And what it does, it lays us bare and naked and exposed before God as the utterly and totally dependent creatures that we are. And none of us like that. None of us want to be exposed like that, and none of us think that we're covering up anything, but his word tells us otherwise. See, Jesus is no longer here to speak audibly to us. He's in heaven. He's reigning over everything. He's not here to speak audibly to us, but he hasn't left us without his word. Now, he sent us his spirit to dwell in his people and to inspire the writing of his scriptures. And now his authority, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and now he exercises his authority through his word. You want to hear from the king? Read his word. And he will have things to say that sometimes lift us up, but other times pierce us to the heart. And if the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life, either to keep you saved or to save you for the first time, I'm telling you, he's going to pierce you with his word. That's what he does because he loves us. This past Monday, I was spending time in the scriptures and I was reading through our REAP plan on our Austin Stone app and one of the readings there was Psalm 73. And then there's a famous verse in Psalm 73 that if you've been in church, you've probably heard or have read. If you haven't, you may not have read it before. But when I read it, it stood out to me and I want to read it to you really quickly. Psalm 73, 25 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I'd read this chapter in Psalms many times. I read it many times, and every time I've read it before, that verse always stood out to me. And on Monday morning when I read it, it stood out to me, but not for the reason you might think. See, Monday morning I was waking up and I was getting ready for work and I was feeling pretty tired. I mean, this is the end of a long year for most of us. Summer is coming and I'm thinking about vacation. I can't wait to go on vacation, can't wait to have some time off, and I'm exhausted, but I'm getting in the Bible because I'm supposed to. I want to be a good son of God and read the word, and so I'm getting, open the Bible, but I don't really want to, and so I say a quick prayer, open the Bible, expecting nothing to happen, honestly. So I read through the four passages, and this verse stands out to me. This verse is kind of ringing in my mind, I can't get away from it, but I'm thinking, that can't be right. That can't be right, because nothing in me resonates with this verse, so I reread the other three passages. I'm thinking, I must have heard the Holy Spirit wrong. It's not me right now. I read the other three passages. I read them, but still, Psalm 73, 25 to 27 is ringing in my mind. And I, re- I remember thinking and praying, God, this doesn't make any sense. Nothing in me resonates with what this man is saying. He says, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. That's not true. I want a beach right now. That's where I want to go. I want to go on vacation, God. I don't agree. I don't even feel what he's feeling. This can't be right. He says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I didn't want to read the Bible this morning. I want to get in my car and go to work and get away from the Bible. I'm sitting there. Nothing about these Holy Spirit-inspired words is resonating with my heart. Why is this burning in my mind? And that's when it hit me. That's the point. That was the point. 
See, these verses are speaking of incomparable value of knowing God. That nothing compares to him and knowing him and satisfied by him. Nothing. And the reason I couldn't resonate with these soaring words of praise showed me how rebellious I had become. Showed me how I'd bought into the lie that what I really needed was a vacation and a time off for my heart to be right with God. I bought the lie that what that God was okay with my life as long as my behaviors weren't that bad, even if my affections were stale. That's a lie. That's not true. I put my hope in circumstances being rearranged, not in a God changing my heart. Now, let's be honest. Can, does God use vacation? Absolutely he does. I'm still going on vacation this summer. It's still happening. I'm still going to the beach. He uses it, and God's word talks about time off and Sabbath and vacation. He talks about it. But I had mistaken its importance. I had mistaken its importance. I had made a secondary issue a primary issue. But I know vacation can't bring me the rest I want. We've all been on an amazing vacation, and we've all said this, whether you want to admit to it or not. You get home, you say, I need a vacation from a vacation. We've all said that. Why? I was going to vacation to bring me the soul rest that I want, and it just can't. It can't do that. You're planning this summer vacation. I'm telling you, if you put all your eggs in that basket, it will let you down. You'll come back just as stressed and anxious as you were before. God can use it, but it comes through him, interacting with him, knowing him, obeying him, meditating on him, praying to him. That's where rest comes from, and that's where the word of God pierced in my heart that morning. Vacation's a poor savior, Tyler. It's a poor savior. And if you actually interact with God, you actually read his word and actually interact with this God, the same will happen to you. It's only a matter of time before he takes that secondary issue, moves it out of the way, and brings you face to face with him. I mean, think about how often, in our minds, how often the the reason we can't trust Jesus is because of the failures of other people. How often we say, I can't do this thing Jesus tells me to do in the Bible because of the failures of other people. How often we justify not trusting him because of the failures of this church. How often we justify bitterness and anger and frustration because of the wounds we've received. How often we justify not living in community and being known because no one reached out to us. How often we justify not living on mission because they didn't respond well to the first time we tried. How often you and I tend to excuse our own disobedience with others' disobedience. That I'll obey once they obey. But Jesus' word will say they are and your circumstances are a secondary issue. They're important and we'll get to them. But first and foremost, you give to God the things that are God's. It's what Jesus did with Peter on the beach after his resurrection. So Jesus comes to Peter, he reinstates him into relationship and into ministry. And he tells him, hey, Peter, you're going to die for me one day. You're going to die for me one day. And instead of embracing Jesus' word and restoration, instead of doing that, he begins to think about, well, what about John? What about him? Well, if he's not going to do it, then I don't want to do it. Look at how Jesus responds to him in John 21, 21. It says, when Peter saw him, John, his fellow disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
I love that Jesus says, don't worry about him. Don't worry about them. Yeah, I know your husband or wife may be difficult. I know your circumstances may be trying. But don't worry about that first. Your primary issue is your allegiance and following of Jesus. Those secondary issues are important. And the word of God has so much to say. So much wisdom and so many commands on what he wants his people to do with these different issues in our life. And he will get to those. But not before he gets to your heart. Not before he tells the Pharisees and the Herodians and the rest of us. We'll get to that. You give to God that which is rightfully his. All of you. All of you. And this is a terrifying process. This being exposed process would be terrifying if anyone other than Jesus was doing it. If anyone other than Jesus was calling us out in this way, this would be terrifying. Don't want you to think about if anyone else had the information about us that Jesus has about us, uh-oh, that'd be terrifying. I mean, Jesus knows everything. Everything. Those shameful things that you've done that no one knows about, the shameful things you've forgotten, the shameful things we wish we could forget, he knows about. Every seedy, evil, perverse thought you've ever had, he knows about. He knows everything you would not want anyone to know. He knows it better than we do, actually. And on top of that, he's the most offended party. He's the most offended, the most hurt, the most wrong, the most angered by it. I mean, if it's anyone else, we have no hope. Anyone else would use it to destroy and to shame us, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He's like no one else you know. See, Jesus exposes the intentions of your heart not to shame you, but to save you. He enables us to be vulnerable before God with no fear of punishment or disapproval. That on the cross, he took all of that shame, all of that guilt away. Even if you feel it, it's not real. It's not real. It's gone in Christ. He took it all away. His gospel then makes it possible for the word of God to cut to our hearts but not crush us. The gospel makes it possible for the word of God to call your sin and my sin for what it is. Wicked, heinous, evil, perverse, rebellious, destructive. But not crush us. Not destroy us. See, when he reveals and exposes our hearts, it becomes an opportunity not to have shame over self, but to have joy in God. I, I really want you to hear what I just said because we do this very poorly as a people. Most of the time what happens when you are revealed sin in your life, I see it in me, I see it in all of us. This is across the board. That when we experience sin in our life and God shows it to us, all of us go, I'm the worst, I hate myself, I need to get better, I need to, need to work harder, I don't like me, I wish I was someone different, I, wish, I think God thinks I was, wishes I was someone different. And it's all about us. Can I just tell you, the point of, of God revealing your sin is not to focus on self, but to have a springboard into marveling at Jesus. To see your sin and say, I can't believe he's so much better than me. I can't believe that that man would die for me. Your weakness should cause you to marvel at his strength. Your perversion should cause you to marvel at his purity. Your apathy should cause you to marvel at his devotion. 
Your frustration and lack of patience should cause you to marvel at his patience with you. Our sin is a springboard into worship. It doesn't stay on self. It's not about us. It's for us to look at Christ and see just how much better he is than us. Church, we cannot shy away from his word. I think we shy away from his word and shy away from community because we're scared of being exposed. We're scared of, of him calling us out, scared of others calling us out. But we have nothing to fear when his word goes past the lesion on our skin to the cancer that dwells beneath. He's taken away all fear. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love cast out fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to be afraid of. And now when we go before God, we can confess and be honest and have him expose us. And sometimes, church, you will receive a stern rebuke from him. Like a loving father, you will receive a stern rebuke from him. And other times, you'll receive a tender encouragement. But all of it will be done in love. All of it will be done in love. See, this is the relationship that every person can have with God through Christ. And this is the, the key right here. This is the power, this reality, this gospel is the power for us to be vulnerable with one another. This is the power to be vulnerable with one another. See, not only do you and I get to be known deeply by God, but by our other siblings in Christ. See, now we can be vulnerable with one another without fear of rejection or shame or punishment. Why? Because all of us have tasted how sweet it is to to be received by Jesus. How sweet it is to know that all we deserve is shame and destruction and despair. And yet, through Christ, God gives us assurance and affection and mercy and kindness and love. And that becomes the fuel for us to be honest with one another. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room, none of you are exempt, need to be honest with somebody in your life and tell them what's going on. That is some of us in this room, that's your act of faith if you actually believe what God says about you. Confessing sin is not to atone for our sin. Confessing sin is because we believe it's already been atoned for by Jesus. So now I can be known by somebody. I tell you that you don't have to live in Christ. You don't have to live in a quiet prison of fear and loneliness and shame. I really think a lot of us, because we're so individualistic, we just think, no, 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 I'll figure it out. No, you won't. No, you won't. It'll bury deep down and it'll get heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier to carry. You get to embrace God and be known by him with no fear of punishment because of Jesus. And that becomes a springboard to actually confess your sin and your heart and your fears and your insecurities to somebody else. I fear for us as a church this large, we can come in here and be very anonymous have a great experience and have a time where we really get to worship God and yet no one ever know anything about us. God has saved us and comforted us so we could be a comfort to one another. That amazing salvation is not just for you. It's for you to display to somebody else when they confess their sin and their insecurities to you. And here's your encouragement to actually do this and actually be honest there's not one impressive person in this church. Not one. There's not one person at this church that the more you get to know them, they don't get less and less impressive. Not one. Anything good you get to see in somebody, it's because they've been around Jesus for some time. See, we're all in this together. We're all clinging to the only perfect person in this church. His name is Jesus. 
Everybody else are busted up chumps. That's just the truth. That's who we are. If you don't think that, you don't get it. He's the only impressive person. The more you get to know him, the more impressive he gets. The more amazing he gets. That's why we talk about him because he's the one who knew everything about us and yet he still loved us. He's the one who knew everything about us and he exposes it not to shame us, but to save us. Here's the question you have to ponder today. What secondary issue have you made a stumbling block to trust in God? What secondary issue do you keep raising and coming back to as the reason why you don't have to finally give your life to God and submit to him in every area? What relationship are you saying, God, until you give me this, until you change this, until you answer this question or this doubt, I cannot trust you, I cannot obey you. And God's word to you today is we will get to that. Either now in the word or in the future in heaven, we will get to that. But first things first, you give to God what is his. And what is his is all of your life. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy to say words, God, to say out loud that you love us, to say out loud that you're for us, to say out loud that you care for us, but God, it's harder to believe them. Father, it's harder to experience them and to live in them and to trust them and to treasure them. So God, what we would love for you to do this morning is to give us faith to believe them, to see them for what they are. God, I ask that you would give us courage to share what's going on inside of us to one another. God, that you would not let us be fooled into thinking that, oh, well, we'll get around to it. We'll talk about it eventually. God, so many of us are carrying burdens we weren't meant to carry. We're carrying secrets we weren't meant to carry by ourselves. That God, we get to go to you and know because of Jesus we're loved, because of Jesus we're righteous, because of Jesus we're holy. And so we're confessing sin as obedience to that because we believe it's already been atoned for so we can be honest and open about it. God, thank you for the church. God, thank you that we don't have to walk through this alone, that we get to have brothers and sisters speak your word to us in very powerful ways. God, would you begin to release burdens, release chains in this room? so that this city could see how much hope and how much life and how much love is in this Jesus. And we have constant access to all the things everyone's searching for. We have constant access to hope and purpose and power and love. God, we have always, always through Jesus. So God, thank you for this morning and how often your word cuts us to the heart to expose what's there, not to shame us, but to save us. God, we ask and we hope and we beg these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.